as we continue in our series, What We Believe, and we look at the foundations of what we believe, uh, I want to encourage you to not just listen to what we're doing on Sundays, but throughout the week to go back and you do some your own personal study, digging deeper and deeper into these things. I, I've always said this, that we need to major on the majors and minor on the minors. You know, and, and there are certain majors that the reason that they're majors is because they are the foundations of the faith. If you take those away, the faith crumbles. The minors, not such a big deal. We can sit and argue and talk about those all day, but they don't change the foundations. And as we get into today, we're continuing to look at the reliability and the accuracy of God's Word. You know, the first three weeks we looked at uh, who God is. We looked a little bit at his word last week, but we know who God is because of what he says in the word, because this is his special revelation to us that reveals who he is, reveals the guidelines that he has for us to live by, and it, and it, and it keeps us in these boundaries to have an abundant life the way he created for us to have abundance during a, a part of his definition of abundance. But the reality is this. How do we know that this is true today? How do we know that this is as accurate today as the day that he gave it? Now, you may believe that God inspired and God gave the word of God through man. As we looked at last week, that the, the argument that all these different authors over a 1,500 period of time actually is proof that God did inspire the word. But you may think, well, how is it possible that what we had then that you believe was God-inspired word and maybe was, infa and was infallible, that how do we know today that it's still infallible? After all of these translations from one to another, all the different uh, versions that we have, one another, how do we know that it's still the same today that it was then? And so I want to take some time to look at the accuracy of God's word because the reality is this, that three in ten Americans, um, who they would interpret the the Bible literally as God's word. Only three in ten would say that it is literally God's word. Now, these are Americans. Most of these people go to church. 49% of Americans believe that it's an inspired word of God. Now get this, but it's not to be taken literally. Allow the absurdity of that just to rock your world a little bit. It is the inspired word of God. It's coming from God. It's inspired, by, but not to be taken literally. Those, those two don't even go together, and only 70% consider it, or 70% consider the Bible an ancient book of stories recorded by man. They don't even believe that it's by God. It's just recorded by man. It's just a bunch of stories passed down from generation to generation to generation. So for us to say that this is the infallible word of God is a big statement in our word today. Now, let's talk about infallibility. What does infallible mean? It's without error, right? Even a dumb jock like me can figure that one out. If it's infallible, it's not. It's without error. And so when we look at that and we look at who God is, we know, we know certain truths about God, that he is holy and righteous, that he is without blemish. So if this is indeed God's word, then how can it be fallible? If God is holy and righteous and perfect, then how can his word be fallible? We saw last week that this is God-breathed, that God spoke this into the hearts of man, and man wrote down God's word. And we saw how the continuity from the Old Testament through the New Testament, the themes that go all through, that there's no contradictions between all these authors, is actually proof that it was spoken by God. We saw in 2 Timothy 3.16 that it is all Scripture is breathed by God. It's God-breathed. 
that God breathed into the hearts of these men, and even with their personalities, their education, their status in the community, you know, being all over the place, he weaved it so that it was his word, and that we have today uh, is proof. But so we look at some other things that we know about God within God's word. One being that God cannot lie. You know, so if you look at Hebrews 16, uh, or 6, verses 17 and 18, we see that, uh, that so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeability, uh, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with one oath, so that by the two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to what? Lie. We who have fled from refuge might have strong encouragement to the hold fast to the hope that is set before us. That those who are looking to this promise that God made, you know, they're holding on to the fact that God cannot lie because of who he is. You know, and so we, we see in Scripture that it's God-breathed. We see in Scripture attributes about God, that he is holy, he's righteous, he's without blemish, he cannot lie. You know, you know and God is all-powerful. And so I pose the question, if God is all-powerful, can he not maintain his word and the accuracy of his word if he's all-powerful? If he's God, then he can do all those things. And so because of that, we have another instruction in Scripture. Because it is, in, it, it, it is perfect, it is without error, God says don't add one thing to it. One verse says not a jot or a tittle. One, one little apostrophe or one little dot, he says, don't add to it. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that in the New Testament. In Deuteronomy 4, in verse 2, it says, You not, shall not add to the word that I have commanded you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I, that I have commanded. So we see in, in Deuteronomy that after he's given the law, he says, don't add one thing to it. We see in Revelations 22, verses 18, 19, something similar, talking about the book of Revelations. I warn everybody who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are described in this book. And if anybody takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. And so it's interesting that you see in the beginning and there at the end, God's talking about don't add one thing to it, which speaks truth to some of the other writings that people claim to be of God. Well, if God says in his word that he's done, he's done. Now, as I've said numerous times before, I am a very much a skeptical mind. You know, and so I've just given you evidences from within God's word that talk about the that God is perfect and that God can maintain his word and various different things. And there's more that's in here. But here's the reality, and it, this was the reality for me, and it's the reality for some of your family members and some of your friends. They, they would make this argument, uh, and, and it might shut you down, that, okay, you've given me proofs from inside the word, but how do you know that this is still accurate? If this is inaccurate, then how do you know anything inside of it is trustworthy? To which many Christians can say little to nothing other than what was a lot of times quoted to them in Sunday school. You just got to have faith. Well, how far is that going to get a skeptic or somebody that is an atheist? How far is that going to get them into trusting this? You just got to have faith. Probably not very far at all. And so as we look at some things, it's amazing to me that not only has God given us this special revelation and that when we understand that God is who he is and he can, he can maintain this, but God has made things discoverable outside of the word of God that gives us other convincing proofs that what we read in here is accurate. And so if this is infallible, doesn't it stand a reason that it would be a historical document that's accurate? 
right? I mean, if it's an infallible word of God, as he tells us about nations and peoples and groups, that we ought to be able to look through it and say that this is, a, this is an accurate historical document and indeed is true. And so uh, it's amazing to me that it, not just within the confines of my lifetime, but in the recent past, in the lifetimes of people that are in our church, the things that God has allowed to be discoverable, mainly through archaeology, that prove that what we have is accurate, that it's reliable, that it is God's word, amazes me. That in generation after generation after generation, and may I just make this claim that the further we get in generations, the less they believe in God. Would you agree with that? We get further and further separated from God, that in each of these generations, God has made things discoverable, that all they do is prove his truth. And so as you look at some of the things in, that are, are in the Bible, in fact, one of the main arguments that used to be is that, hey, look, there's people groups in this Bible that we have no evidence of, therefore the Bible can't be true. Uh, not a very sound, logical argument. Just because we don't have proof that those people groups didn't exist, you can't throw the whole thing out. But yet, some people stand upon that saying, you know, and, and once again, we see in history. So, for example, you know, we know that uh, we already knew this, that, you know, all languages came from one. Well, guess what scientists have discovered? They've discovered the same thing. And we want to say uh, with a big Christian amen, duh, we already knew that, right? But, you know, People don't get that, and so now that they've discovered that, Sodom and Gomorrah, you look at that, you look at how God said he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, guess what archaeologists have found? They have found that. They have found that there was an earthquake and there was some sort of great heat. They don't know what it was that, that just melted the rock. They've discovered that stuff. You know, the amazing thing, having been over in Israel, I don't know where all this dirt comes from. I don't know if it comes from the desert, but dirt just piles upon dirt, it piles upon dirt, piles upon dirt. Yes, I was standing, you know, no further than here than the stores across the street from the walls of Jerusalem. I was standing in a site that seven years ago was excavated, and it's probably at least 50 feet deep that is uh, David's, the city of David. It's been covered, and it seven years ago was a parking lot. I mean, it's 50 feet deep that they have, probably more than that, that they've uncovered. And so as archaeologists dig down and they get to these civilizations, they're finding things that the dirt has just covered up. What a metaphor for our life. The dirt, the sin that so easily entangles that covers up God's glory in our lives. You know, that we see God allows it to be discoverable, all these things. One of the main arguments against the Bible was that the Bible claims that, that there's this people group called the Hittites, and they were pretty well advanced, and, you know, and there was no evidence up until recently of this Hittite civilization. And so not only has archaeologists discovered that they did exist, they discovered that not only did they exist, they existed for a 1,200-year uh, period of time, and they were incredibly, incredibly intelligent. And so once again, it continues to prove God's word. The walls of Jericho, here's one of those stories we read in the Old Testament, right? How'd they do it? They marched around the walls, and they prayed. You know, and you look at that, and you go, that is the dumbest battle strategy I ever heard. And you read, this is what amazes me. You read all through uh, you know, the, the Old Testament. You read through Judges. You read through those, those battle strategies, and every single time, God did it in a way that they could not take credit for. So the walls, you sang it as a kid, came tumbling down. Guess what archaeologists found? They found the walls. And guess how they fell? They didn't fall inward. They fell outward. Now, why is that a big deal? 
if you are an opposing force trying to get inside the wall, you're not going to blow them up, or of course they couldn't blow them up then so that they fall outward on you. You're going to do it so they fall inward and you can get pen penetrate through. But the walls fell outward. Once again, proving that what God's word says is true. It amazes me, and I hope that it encourages you that maybe you came buying into some of the arguments that people say that all the translations, all the things, the stories in there, there is no way. Hopefully just some of this evidence that we see within God's word that God is allowed to be discoverable outside his word continues to give you convincing proofs. And I don't want you to just have convincing proofs intellectually. I want those proofs to be so convincing that from your core you are unshakable. <sighs> Because you know it to be true. I hope that just as it does for me, it kind of fires you up a little bit that God has made these things discoverable for you, not for us, but for you, so that you may know that this is his word, that it's infallible. But you may still say, well, we've had all these copies, all these translations. We have all these versions now. How do we know that what we have today is what we had then. Matter of fact, there's a study done in 2002, and it's, it's one of the most recent ones that we still have, that there was 2,287 translations into different languages or dialects that the Bible's been translated in. It's pretty amazing when you think about it, all these translations that have the Word of God, but the, the argument that comes from that is, okay, we've done all these different translations. How do we know it is accurate? Um, and so it makes logical sense, but if you go back to understanding uh, you know, the day when all this stuff was written, it was written on, on different types of paper. Probably the most popular that we're familiar with is papyrus. The problem with these papers is that they would deteriorate easily. And so it was actually the job of the scribes to copy the Bible. And uh, I could not do this job. I think I would uh, blow up and, and, and go absolutely crazy. So here's what they did. They would copy sections at, the, at a time. Hebrew goes from right to left. You know, so they would be writing from right to left. They'd do a section, but they did it in such a way that when they were done, they would count. They would count the columns and the rows. And so they would count up and down and right to left, and they knew what the numbers were for each column, for each row, and the total. And, and, and we're, not, we're not just counting words. We're counting characters. So every letter, every dot, every, they're counting all of that. And guess what happened if they didn't get the exact number? They didn't have whiteout. And because it was a big deal, because this was God's word, they had to destroy it and start all over. And so that, that was just kind of the, when they made these copies, that was how they had to make them. And so we, we have copies. Uh, so I don't know how many King James fans we have here, but there's a, there's a certain group of King James people that are like, this is the only version, to which I say, well, what about all those people that, don't, that just got it translated in their language for the first time. What about theirs? But anyway, here's some other information for you. The King James Version goes back to the, the earliest manuscripts that we had at that time was A.D. 900. And so that was the earliest transcripts we had before 1947. In 1947, we found, uh, we didn't find, but some nomads found the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're going to put up some pictures here. I was just there a few weeks ago, standing right there where they are. These are the Qumran Hills where you can see some caves in there that these scrolls were found. There's another one here, a little bit close-up shot of some of the caves. And even to get to that, uh, we, you'd have to do some incredible climbing. But it was not a shepherd, as I was originally told. It was just out there bored throwing rocks into things. It was actually nomads that had their sheep out there. And there is nothing out there. 
You know, a certain time of the year, there's some grass that grows on these hills that they would go out and they would, uh, they would take their sheep around. And you can see at the bottom of this hill, so if, looking back behind me is the mountain, the Kumon Mountains. Down there at the bottom is the Dead Sea. That's how close it is. And so these nomads were out there and, and they're in these caves and they discover these pots, these clay pots that in are the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, once again, it's just amazing to me that God preserved them and that the scribes that were there in Qumran were being overtaken by the Romans. They took these things and they hid them in the caves. The Romans, they tried to break them up and a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, you can see some of them were burned. They tried to destroy them, but they put the things back together. It's amazing. Now, here's what's even more amazing. The Dead Sea Scrolls, remember the earliest manuscript before, uh, 900 AD, guess where they date back to? 150 BC. The God made these things discoverable in our time so that we can look at. Now, here's the amazing thing, and I wouldn't have the patience to do this. When you look at the Old Testament, uh, which is the, the Dead Sea Scrolls with the earlier manuscripts that they had, and you, you check them out, there is a 95% accuracy rate. Now, here's what my skeptical mind says. Well, what about that 5%? Because that could be significant. Well, I'm glad you asked. In that 5%, uh, the difference, there are no theological differences. Um, there, most of them are obvious slips of the pen, a misspelling of the word, uh, or, or something like that. So if you take Isaiah, for example, 53, which is a prophetic passage in the Old Testament, uh, and you look at that, there are 166 Hebrew words in Isaiah 53. You know, and in that, uh, there are only 17 Hebrew letters that are different in the Dead Sea Scrolls from the previous copies that we had. 17 letters. You know, and in that, there's, it doesn't affect the meaning very much. It does, it, and, it, and it's, you know, it just amazes me when you look at how God has preserved his word. Now, you might say, okay, well, what about the New Testament? Well, it's even more impressive as far as the New Testament. Uh, you know, even that, that what we have in the Old Testament, there is no other writing in antiquity that has more copies of it. There's no other writing in antiquity that has a better accuracy rate. Um, in matter of fact, the second most copy writing of all antiquity is the Iliad, and there's only 643 copies of that, where there's more than 24,000 complete or partial cop copies of the Old Testament. Can God preserve his word? You bet he can. And when you take those and you lay them up, and now you come to the New Testament, what about the accuracy of that? Well, it's even better. They already beat me. It's on the screen. 99.5% accuracy rate. Let me say that again. 0.5 of 1%, half of 1% inaccuracy on the translations of what we have today, you know, in, in, the, in the New Testament. You know, and you even look at those things, and it's, it's similar deals, spelling errors or maybe in addition to a word, for example, that some of them are, instead of saying Jesus in one version, another version might say Jesus Christ. And so you have this change, very slight things, 99.5% accuracy rate. If you were to retype your own paper that you had written five times, what would your accuracy rate be? And that's with computer technology. When I was doing my thesis, I screwed up so many times that my, the guy that I had to pay to proof it keeps sending stuff back. You know, I couldn't even have that good of an accuracy rate with modern technology. God has preserved his word in a way that not only can we intellectually understand, but that it can pervade our souls so that our foundation is not shaken. And yet many people still don't think 
that it is God's infallible word. And so, just like the first service, I'm already out of time. And that drives me nuts because this is some good stuff. We'll have to pick it up more next week. But how does that impact you? I hope it changes a lot about what you think. And perhaps some of you came here this morning as we talked, and, and you're just stuck in bondage, you're stuck in a rut, you're stuck. You know, I think so many people don't read this thing because in the back of their mind, they're not sure if it's true. Well, let me tell you, it's true. It's infallible. God has preserved it. You know, God loved you so much that he wrote this so that you can know him. He wrote this to give us the parameters to stay within so that we can achieve and, and experience God's blessing. One of the, I, I learned something amazing this week. It may sound real simple, but in the midst of doing on Monday this funeral service that was awesome, by the way, and I got to present the gospel with well over 200 people, and they were on the edge of their seats, you know, and then this week meeting with other pastors who are saying they want to spend time with me, and as I was meeting with my mentor on Wednesday, you know, I was a little bit concerned about all this stuff. People are calling me left and right. They want my time, and in my desire to be humble, I am almost giving them the Heisman and trying to keep them at arm's length. And this is what he said, Dave, they're not interested in you. Matter of fact, it's nothing that you're doing that's drawing them towards you. It's this. It's God's word. And as you promote God's word, you promote his kingdom, you, you package it in a way, they're hearing it in a different light. And what they're drawn to you to has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with this church. It has to do with this. And here's the thing. When we read this, when we promote God, when we are obedient to all that is within here, God heaps his blessings upon us in ways that are just continuing to blow my mind. He's made this, he's written this, so that you would know that it's truth. He's given us things inside the Bible, outside the Bible, so that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that all of it's true, that it's infallible. And maybe you came this morning, maybe you came a little bit skeptical. Maybe you have a family member who's a skeptic and, and they don't believe this, and God's given you a little bit of extra something to say that this is true, that you can go not to bash them on the head with, but to say, you know, have you ever considered the accuracy of the copies? Huh? What are you talking about? Have you ever considered the, the proofs that God has, the things that God has allowed to be discovered in archaeology that back this up? That, that you can just share with them and allow the Holy Spirit to take and turn? Maybe you came today and, and you haven't totally given your life to Christ because you've been unsure about the truth of this. Well, maybe today's the day that you get that right. This friend of mine that I buried on Monday, you know, when he was a child, he was in a church in Durham, North Carolina, much like this, a Baptist church, where he ran the aisle one day and he gave his life to Jesus. He prayed a prayer, but to be honest, there was no evidence in his life. He knew the stories. There was testimony on Monday from all these football players that he coached that he constantly was giving them scripture, but there was no evidence in his life that he had a relationship with Christ until the last three years. Well, let me tell you, those last three years were amazing. Well, not only did he give scriptures, but he claimed the God's glory. You saw a transformation in his life. He knew this was true. He knew God's presence in his life, and he couldn't stop talking about it. There are many, many, many people in church pews warming them right now, maybe even right here, that did the same thing that he did as a kid, that prayed some prayer, got baptized because they didn't want to burn in hell. 
but there's no evidence in their life that they know Jesus. They know about him, but they don't have a relationship. Part of it is because maybe they don't understand that this is truth. If that describes you today, if you're just not sure, then come and allow us to answer some questions, point you in a direction so that you can search this for truth for yourself and you can make a decision on your own just like he did. And the best part of that service was, as I'm sharing the gospel, just about everybody in there saw the change in his life. And here's these manly men, former collegiate and, and football players and coaches, that the whole room is full of these guys that were standing on the standing room only, on the edge of their seats. I've never had that many people so mesmerized by the gospel as there was then. So much so that 150 of them came to the graveside. It's not me. It's not you. It's not this church. It's God. And he wants to set you free from bondage. He wants you to understand who he is. And he's given us his word. He's given us convincing proofs outside the word so that our lives can be transformed and so that we can communicate this to others in ways that their lives can be transformed as well. Maybe you've been coming here for a while. You know, and maybe you want to be a part of a church that believes all of this, that it's infallible. And, you know, maybe you just need to come and find some more about our church. And this is where we love to give you answers to those questions. But here's my, I'm going to end. When God reveals truth to us, it requires a response. So as we have this time of commitment, I want you just to ask yourself, what is it that God has revealed to me? What is it that has excited me? What commitment am I willing to make in light of what he has revealed to me today? Maybe you just need to study more. Maybe you have information you need to share with a particular family member. Maybe you need to make a decision to get back and reading his word because if it's infallible and it has everything he wants for us, we need to read it. Maybe you need to respond to it for the first time and yield your life to Christ. Whatever it is, what commitment are you willing to make in light of what he's revealed to you this morning? God's word says this. Be doers of his word, not hearers only. So as we come to this time of invitation, I encourage you to make whatever commitment you feel the Holy Spirit's laying upon your heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have made things so discoverable for us that it takes away even the skeptic's mind. But Lord, more so than giving us intellectual understanding, Lord, that you've made it so that that intellectual understanding can go to our core, can go to our soul, and can transform us from the inside out. God, I pray that as you've done in my heart, that you would do for every single person that is here, every single person that's listening online, Lord, that you would allow them to know that your word is living, that it is powerful, that it is infallible, and that, God, it speaks, and that it rains down upon us, your blessing when we had listened to it and we obey. And so, God, right now, I pray that you would help us to yield to what the Holy Spirit is saying and doing in our lives and to respond in a way that is worthy of worship for you. In Jesus' name, amen.